Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Now imagine being able to sit down and have a meaningful conversation about the state of the United States with a woman who is a Yale-educated lawyer, a graduate of the FBI's famed academy in Quantico, Virginia, a former FBI counterintelligence investigator who today is a senior lecturer at Yale and a legal and national security analyst for CNN. That's today's episode. Her name is Asha Rangpapa, and she's a stunner. And we have a powerful conversation about the state of affairs in the United States, the decline of social capital, uh, the destructive power of disinformation, which uh, which Asha teaches about, and disengagement and more. This is a big insight into what's going on in our world today. And frankly, I think it's another great example of the power of a real dialogue podcast, because the only way to get inside a mind like Asha's is to have a conversation with her. And if you can't do that, then listening to one is pretty awesome. And that's what today is. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite, the number one cloud ERP system. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Asha, it is so, so fantastic to meet you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. You know, just learning about you and learning about your career and uh, consuming a lot of your stuff. I just want you to know you're an incredible inspiration to me. Thank you. It's always it's always nice to hear, I guess. And I'm, I'm never sure exactly what to make of that. But Well, you're an extraordinary person, best I can tell. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's... Um, well, it's, you know, what's strange is that it's been, you know, I've been glad to have a voice in these last several years, but it's uh, bittersweet in the sense that the reason that, you know, I have done the writing or speaking that I've done um, is really because of some pretty terrible things that are happening right now. So, yeah, I yeah. guess bittersweet that. You know, I can touch people, but it's it's also for for reasons that I wish did not exist. Yeah, for sure. And and it's interesting. I don't know. This may be corny, and you may tell me I've lived on the West Coast too long. But if I look at your background and I look at what's happening now in the world, you know, it's almost as though you were training yourself to kind of be who you are and be the voice that you are in this moment. Because best I can tell, your background gives you a place to stand in this discussion that we're now having in the country and around the world um, that very few people could stand in. Yeah, you know, I mean, my path is all, has been a very unusual one. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, and it's allowed me to straddle a lot of different worlds, whether it's being, you know, growing up as the child of immigrants in the South or you know, being a person of color, but also having been in law enforcement, it's an, it's a unique window, um, into a lot of different worlds and, uh, yeah, they, they all sort of converge in various ways, um, in this kind of twilight zone reality that we have. Well, and even, uh, being an educator today, um, you know, if we were to draw the Venn diagram mm -hmm. of you, there'd be a lot of circles that come together to make that circle in the middle, right? <laughs> 
And so yeah. I, I want to get yeah. to all of that. But if you don't mind, um, what is it with you and uh, and uh, William Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I am a Shakespeare aficionado. Um, you know, I got into Shakespeare in law school. Um, I became really good friends with a classmate who had uh, done some acting in Shakespeare repertory theater before he came to law school. Uh, and also it was my third year of law school and I was having my existential crisis about becoming a lawyer. Um, so I spent my third year of law school actually working with him and we ended up producing The Merchant of Venice in the Yale Law School courtyard. Uh, <laughs> the dean had a cameo. <laughs> and um, I ended up after graduation going and acting in that same Shakespeare program, which is right outside of Austin, Texas. It's called Shakespeare at Winedale. Uh, we, it's a renovated barn um, that's become a theater and you basically live there for two months uh, rehearsing all day long and then you do about six weeks of shows so we did uh, as you like it we did pericles and romeo and juliet and i played rosalind and as you like it which was really fun um, and some smaller roles in the other two plays and then we also went to london and and did a performance there and it's just, you know, I feel, I, I love Shakespeare because he, his writing encompasses all of humanity. And you can actually like look at characters and understand motivations of people today through his words. So I'm a big fan. And so <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question of, of, of why Shakespeare, but uh, I find him especially relevant uh, to to current events. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not the aficionado that you are, but I do remember uh, being in middle school and the teacher having us read Macbeth. And then we went to go see uh, the, a movie of Macbeth that I think was made in the 50s, if I remember. It might have been the 60s, but, a, you know, a, a much older movie. And I, 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 rem I did go through this time in um, middle school where I was sort of a little weirdly obsessed with the story of Macbeth. Just for all those reasons, you know, Shakespeare does give us an, a window into humanity that is... And again, I'm far from an English major, but um, it's pretty extraordinary the look that that he gives us, isn't it? It is, and it's there. His stories are universal, and that's why when you you know go to see Shakespeare, often it's updated into modern contexts, and it, it's still so relevant. And I, I think that Shakespeare, you know, is best experienced when you watch it and hear it, because that's how it was meant to be experience. So one of my, one of the casualties of COVID for me in the summer is outdoor Shakespeare, which I assume most theaters are not doing this year. Um, it's one of my favorite things. I take my kids, I have a children's Shakespeare set that basically has sort of synopses of, of the different plays. So I have them, you know, since they were like six or seven, we've read a synopsis of the play. So they know who the characters are. They know what the story is. And then they're able to completely follow the play and they even laugh at the jokes, you know, and it, it becomes much less inaccessible. Um, they, they're, they're completely involved in, in the story. So I think for anyone who wants to get into it, don't, don't read it, go, go watch it. Go watch it. 
And, uh, you know, and some of them, of course, are heavier. And then there's a Midsummer Night's Dream, right? There's very fantastical, almost you wonder, like, was he on LSD when he wrote this or what? (laughs) (laughs) Right, totally. Exactly. And so I'm sort of, this may be a crazy question, but, you know, you have this incredible background as an educator, as a lawyer, as an FBI uh, agent, et cetera, and a Shakespeare aficionado. So the lens that you look through our current day must be a fascinating one. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of let me inside your brain a little. How, how does the world and everything that's unfolding in front of us right now look through this multifaceted lens that you have? You know, I see this current moment really, the, the big influence for me and how I'm understanding what's going on is an author, which I use in, in my Russian disinformation and democracy class. And his name is Robert Putnam. He's a Harvard professor at the Kennedy School. And he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Uh, He wrote in 2000. And basically the book is about the decline of what he calls social capital since World War II. And social capital is how sociologists refer to the value that we get from our relationships with other people. Um, And basically his thesis is that strong social capital is essential for a healthy democracy because when you have a lot of social capital, you also have what's called generalized social trust, which means that you care about the collective well-being of your fellow man. Um, Even people you don't know, you have their backs and Countries, for example, that have strong social capital have high levels of civic engagement. People vote more. They contribute more to charity. They're more honest. Um, they give blood. You know, they, they are much more generous um, in terms of giving up their time. And I think, you know, when I'm on Twitter, when I see what's happening politically, um, his research is really relevant because what we see is that we are at a moment of the lowest level of general social trust since World War II. Um, and most Americans don't trust each other. This is actually a question on uh, the general sur- social survey. They've asked, been asking it since 1972, and we're at the lowest um, response, which is about 30% of people say that most Americans can be trusted. So you're saying, I want to make sure I get this, we're at the lowest level of social trust mm-hmm as defined by, do you and I as fellow citizens of the United States generally trust each other? And that number is now 30% of us think we can trust each other? Yes. So, um, or at least the last time that that question was asked on the general social survey, which I believe was uh, four or five years ago. So even before, you know, Trump, I think this, this status, and, so I, and I, I suspect it's gone down since Trump. But yeah, the question is, can most Americans be trusted? And what you want is a sense of collective identity, you know, a, a sense of unity. Um, yeah, you know, we stand together. We, we might disagree on certain things or how to get to certain goals, but ultimately we're all in this enterprise together. And that's not how we are operating as a country anymore. And I think it is we are at a very precarious moment for our democracy. You know, we are at DEFCON 5. And I, I wonder 
if most Americans understand that fact, because we have been a, a country that has been fortunate in many ways, um, where we, I think, have taken a lot of aspects of our democracy and our institutions for granted. And I don't think we can anymore. It's interesting that you say that uh, there's been a, a, a handful of ideas that I have found myself sort of soaking around in for the last, you know, couple months. Um, and one of them is this, this sort of summarized in a, in a slogany type line, which is, you know, the future is not going to create itself. And there's almost a notion that, you know, things just progress and they are the way they are and we're on whatever trajectory we're on and things are going to play out in a, in a highly predictable way. And, and people relate to the future as though it's the weather, like, oh, it's this thing that's coming and we can sort of forecast it. And we have very little control over it. Like if it's going to be foggy today in Santa Cruz, I can't do shit about that. And I might like the fog or not like the fog, but the fog's the fog. And, and, and one of the frustrations that I've had is, of course, that's not true at all. We as human beings can create the future. And I have come to believe, and I want to bounce this off you, that what's going on here is we are living in a cocoon time. There was life in February and before that, and there's life in what we're living now, which feels like a transition time, and that there'll be life after this, and that we sort of have a unique opportunity to create a very different future if that's what we want to do. Um, maybe that's an optimistic way of looking at it. But I, I'm curious, how do you view this? Do you, do, you, do you see this as a concude time or, or how do you see this period that we're living in? Do you mean the period just since quarantine started or broader than that? that well, I mean, obviously there's lots bubbling before this, but, but that C-19 and um, everything that has come since then, you know, you, know, you just sort of think about it, right? Massive global pandemic that it's incredibly frustrating or, or, or incredibly uh, uh, fear generating, um, you know, well over 100,000 Americans now dead. You know, it's a terrifying thing to deal with a global pandemic. And then as a result, we have a massive global recession like none of us who are alive today have seen before with maybe a few a few exceptions who lived through the, the tail end of the, of the Great Depression. And now, post the murder of George Floyd, obviously we have uh, protests and riots and the like. And we've stacked all these things right on top of each other really in a matter of weeks. And so what it feels like is the amount of social change, economic change, is being amplified and maybe even accelerated. But, you know, I'm very curious what you think of this time that we're in, how it looks to you. I think that it's a crisis point, right? I, I agree with you. I think this is a point in many ways, it's forcing people to really confront what you said. What kind of, what kind of future do we want to live in? I mean, what we are seeing right now, the magnitude of all these things that you just mentioned is because of the worst possible choices being made for any given decision, like literally the worst possible decision uh, that is, you know, on the roster of choices has been made, whether it's with the pandemic or, uh, you know, the economy or uh, in response to the protests. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the Trump administration. And so I think that it has brought to the fore what I was talking about before that 
you know, we are at a precarious moment. I have felt that this has been a precarious moment even before this, but I think the urgency of it might be brought home to a greater degree uh, because of this kind of critical state that we're in at this moment. So if I look at a couple of things, uh, you look at the fact that when C-19 first hit, at least it felt like to me, Americans seemed like we were fairly united. Uh, it felt like there was a, a post 9-11 type of environment, maybe uh, beginning where we were going to come together to deal with this global pandemic and enemy and try to save lives and, and kind of work as one. It felt like that for a little bit anyway. Now that has been incredibly politicized and, and wearing a mask is now somehow a political statement or not wearing a mask is now somehow a political statement. And then everything has sort of flowed from that. And so it strikes me that we've lost the ability to unify, but that's maybe a pessimistic point of view. I'm curious how it looks to you. Yeah. And I, I found it surprising to hear you say that there was a post 9-11 moment with COVID because I did not perceive that at all. From the moment that this hit the news, um, I think there was a clear denial that it was even actually taking place, right? This was another hoax. Um, and so another creation of an alternate reality, which is already in and of itself divisive. I mean, to have a sense of unity, you have to have a shared factual reality as your starting point. Um, you know, except for the fringe conspiracy theorists who claim that 9-11 didn't happen or, or whatever those are. I mean, most people, when it was going on, understood that it was happening, could could visually see uh, the magnitude of it and that that gives this, you know, human connection to it, regardless of where you are in the country or around the world. That did not happen with COVID. And, um, you know, I think COVID, you know, the politicization and, and these things that you're describing is exactly a reflection of what we talk about with social trust, right? That this is a situation where collective action is required in order to produce the greatest outcome for everyone. Um, wearing a mask isn't something that you do to protect yourself. You do it because it is beneficial to everyone around you. And if everyone does it, then that's beneficial to you. And you're doing it to help people that you might not know. You're not going to get any kind of medal for it. You do it just because it's the right thing to do it because you care about some common values. And I think it's a great example of how that's just broken down. And it's also a great example of what I mentioned about the worst possible decision being made at any given moment. It is completely unclear to me why this was a political issue at all. I mean, as someone who also thinks about issues of leadership and, and ethics and things like that, a pandemic seems like a perfect moment to show leadership precisely because it's not political, that you just step up, you announce that this is something we're all going to confront together. You put the experts there, you, you give people guidance for what to do, you set an example, and then you get through it. And apparently that was not something that, you know, this administration was able to execute. And I, I think it's fragmented us as a result. And so um, kind of where do we go from here? I mean, we have a broken economy. We have a healthcare system in, in trouble or in crisis. The number of deaths is is stunning and at least for a person like me sometimes can just feel uh, overwhelming because we all know that all those numbers are not numbers 
Those are people's, those are people, those are, those are, those are loved ones. Uh, we've all lost loved ones. Everybody understands the pain and suffering associated with that. The economic pain and suffering has been beyond most of our comprehension, certainly beyond mine. The impact of this depression or recession is being felt disproportionately amongst our communities of color. The impact of the healthcare crisis is being felt disproportionately amongst our communities of culture. And then the George Floyd murder happens and everything erupts. And so in a situation where many of us feel like there's been a lack of leadership, what, what do you think you and I as fellow Americans can do to make a difference at this time? I mean, I think the most important thing right now is, you know, to vote in November. I, I really do believe that that is probably, this is going to be one of the most critical elections of our lifetime. Um, other than that, I think we can look at our own behavior and control what we can control. You know, I understand my role as a citizen. I wear my mask when I go outside. I try to limit my contact with people while this is still happening, maintain social distancing. So I think it's both the micro and the macro level that you look at what you are able to control. Because I think otherwise it's, you know, getting to a point where you just start listing off all of the disastrous things that are going on and what, you know, what do I do? If overwhelm leads to apathy and disengagement, that's, that's the worst possible outcome. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I have to pick myself up off the floor and remind myself <laughs> that yeah, putting on sweatpants and lying in fetal position doesn't help anyone. I like to do that with a bottle of whiskey and a bag of weed, lay on the floor in my sweatpants and cry. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think that that's been, I think, the challenge for for the last three years, really. And I think in many ways, the um, you know isolation of quarantine, the economic pressures, just the reality of what these protests are revealing about the state of race relations in this country. I mean, it, it can be very overwhelming. And I find that in some ways, and this is why I think the micro is really important. Like in some, sometimes you have to unplug. One thing that I have noticed is that so I'll, I'll travel, you know, when I used to travel before COVID, um, I would get cornered, for example, in the airport by somebody who recognized me and they like, you know, grab me and they're like, tell me this is going to be okay. I watch CNN, you know, 24 hours a day. And I, you know, what are we going to do? You know, and I'm like, you have to unplug at some point, like this is not healthy. So there's also a certain amount of self-care in terms of what do we do for, what, what can we do? You can actually take care of yourself because I, I do think that there is a risk of just going down a spiral of overwhelm. There's just too much. There's too much information. There's a different scandal every day. You know, the, the president is unhinged and we get like caught up in, you know, what he's tweeting. Um, and it's just a, too much crazy. So I, I do think unplugging at some point and not just getting overwhelmed by the magnitude of everything is also important. What's the, I'm reminded as you speak, what's that line Jack Nicholson says in, I think it's in as good as it gets where he says somebody comes to the door and he says, we're all up on crazy here <laughs> it sort of feels like that we're kind of all full up on crazy yeah um and so unplugging yeah i have found that i have to do that I, i'm lucky enough to live in a beautiful part of the world and it's just like i'm gonna turn all this shit off and i'm gonna go for a long walk on the beach and listen to my favorite music yeah and you realize when you do that 
suddenly everything quiets down. Also, you know, meditating or just going and doing something you enjoy. Because I spend a lot of time on Twitter and that's where a lot of my anxiety comes in because it's not just what is actually happening, but social media in particular, the rolling feed, it's, it feels like it just never stops. And people are fighting and they're saying nasty things and stupid things. And it's just, it's like cacophony, you know, um, in your mind. And you don't realize until you step away from it that like, oh my God, there's a world where like, it's quiet and people aren't screaming at each other. And it's not a toxic cesspool. And actually I can have a conversation with a stranger and they're nice. And, you know, balancing out that the reality with what we, I think, take to be reality when we're uh, on social media, for example, or, or just spending too much time in the digital world. Yes. And as somebody who spends a lot of time in the digital world myself, I find the more time I don't spend in the digital world, the better I am when I'm in the digital world. <laughs> yes. And certainly the better I am in life. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's also good because it helps manage our own reactivity, right? One of the things that I've discovered, and especially in the last few weeks with the protests and the you know kind of videos that are circulated online, sometimes which are also disinformation um, designed to get you um, emotionally agitated, is to realize that when I'm at a point where I'm feeling incredibly reactive, um, that's the worst, like that's the time that it's time to step away. Now, I'm curious with all of this tension with the police and law enforcement overall, the defund the police movement, um, you know, as, as a lawyer and as an FBI agent, sort of how do you think about law enforcement today? I think it's been disheartening seeing, you know, what's happening across the country with law enforcement and, and their reactions with the protesters, with the press. I, I think for me, the there was a turning point. I mean, obviously, with with every one of these instances of police brutality, um, it's been horrifying. And the George, I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't even watch the whole video of the George Floyd murder. It was, it, I mean, there's nothing to say about that. It's just, you know, awful. It's the whole contempt that there appears to be between law enforcement and the communities they serve that I think has really undermined, you know, faith in them. And that's a hard because I'm an institutionalist, you know, I like to believe that our institutions can work. Um, but law enforcement, especially just like the courts, you know, the administration of justice from, from law enforcement to prosecution to, to, you know, the, the entire justice system a perception is reality. How people perceive you is essential to maintaining the rule of law. Um, this is actually borne out by research that it's not enough to simply apply the law correctly. People have to believe that the law is being applied correctly. That's uh, what makes for a healthy democracy, for, for a healthy rule of law. And that legitimacy has just been so eroded. And yeah, I, I mean, it, it's hard for me to say as somebody who was a law enforcement officer, you know, I've, and I've also been, been disappointed with, you know, the FBI too. So it's, yeah, I think all around there, you know, this is, this will be a, a very long road um, to repair that breakdown. 
of legitimacy. And here's the weird dichotomy I find myself living in. In my life of late, I've gotten to know the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Department very well. And to the best of my knowledge, they're an extraordinary organization led by an extraordinary man. And I can tell you, based on everything I've seen, there's no racism in the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Department. And, and so in this case, I think what we have, and I think we have the same thing in our police department, although I don't know that as well. I think you have an extraordinary law enforcement agency here trying to do the right things. In that context, we most recently had a psycho kill Sergeant Damon Gertzweiler here in Santa Cruz, as well as a, another federal agent in Oakland. Um, and we re- we just had the, the 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 funeral service for him, and the entire community cried together. And so I think here you have a, a, an extraordinary peace officer, an extraordinary local law enforcement agency, and we're dealing with this horrible loss. And at the same time, we turn on our TVs and we see police doing things that are illegal, immoral, murderous. And this to me is the punctuation point. I don't know why this is the punctuation point, but it is in the context of all of this recently in the Antelope Valley area of Southern California in a town called Palmdale, we've had a a young black man found hanging in a tree. And then there was another one uh, about an hour away. And the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department immediately ruled that a suicide. And when a young black person is hanging in a tree near City Hall and they immediately deem it a a suicide and then it happens again, not far away, it seems insane to me. And so I guess this my point is I'm I'm having this personal dichotomy, which is I know some amazing people in law enforcement who are inspiring and who are exactly the kinds of people I think we all would want to have in law enforcement. And at the same time, we have the murder of George, George Floyd, all of this uh, horrible behavior being exposed. And then this insane business of, of, of what's going on in the Antelope Valley around these hangings. It just, how, how can these things be true, I guess, is my point, Asha. Yeah. That we could have such incredible law enforcement on one hand and what appears to be racist, murderous, horrible, systematic problems on the other. Yeah. So I think you raised a lot of important points and I think it's important to spell, to kind of tease them out. Um, one is, I think it was Mark Twain who said the test of true genius is to be able to hold two opposing ideas in your mind without going crazy. Um, and I think that one of the things that is also related to this idea of breakdown in social trust is that we have become a country where everything has to be seen as binary choices. Law enforcement is either good or bad. You're either for us or against us. It's, it's, it's all very tribal. And so I think we need to recognize that many things, like the world is a complicated place and many things can be true at the same time. It can be true that law enforcement serves an important function in society. Uh, it can be true that there are many law enforcement officers who do a tremendous job and bring a huge, you know, bring integrity and a sense of duty and do their jobs well and with in, in the and to the benefit of the people that they protect and serve. It can be true that there is systemic racism nonetheless. 
in law enforcement as there is in other aspects of society. And I think one way to think about this is, and I, you know, I have tweeted and, you know, taught a little bit about this too, is that when, you know, individual behavior can get subsumed into an organizational culture. And so what you see at an individual level may not be what you see at an organizational level. And I think law enforcement in particular, which um, by nature, because of how people are trained, you know, you're trained to have each other's back because you might be in dangerous situations, fosters this, uh, I'll call it a tribal mentality, you know, this, the sense of everybody's, you know, got to have each other's back. And what can happen is that if you end up with corrupt people, uh, particularly, you know, bullies, um, people who are at the top, that will, that will become the nature of that whole organization because they're, you know, people either end up enabling it or they just stay silent. Pe- very few people will speak up actually in the face of, um, you know, bad behavior. And we saw that with, with, with George Floyd's death, there's this guy, like he's literally murdering somebody and there's three other officers standing there. They do nothing. And so, you know, I think that understanding that all of these things can be true and also that the organizational dynamic is something that needs to be looked at um, in addition to individual personalities and individual wrongdoing um, is critical. And you know, this, if we keep going down this road of binary choices, we just end up screaming at each other as opposed to actually finding real solutions to what's actually going, uh, what, what the problem is. You know, this is such an interesting point that you're on because uh, we, we had this guy on named Buster Benson a while ago, and he wrote this book called Why Are We Yelling? And we seem to, over time, over my lifetime, have devolved more and more into yelling about positions as opposed to having authentic dialogues, right? That that even the paradigm of how we communicate, you and I are having this conversation and a lot of people today, their context of what a conversation is, is I have a position, you have a position, we take a somewhat adversarial stance. My job in the conversation is to prove my position is superior to your position, have you surrender and accept mine, and that's yours, and we end up having this stupid discussion. As opposed to, yes, I bring context, yes, right. I bring opinion, yes, I bring experience, but what I'm most interested in actually is a dialogue with you in, in the chance that maybe we can both learn something. Uh, and I'm less interested in, in, in a right or wrong thing, and I'm more interested in a um, let's open this thing up and take a look at it together. And even if we disagree, I mean, I, I assume you do too. I have friends across all the, the political spectrum, some of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with. There are people in my life that I love dearly and disagree with 70% of what they think politically and yet can engage in deep conversation with them about it in a way that I think is pretty powerful. But somehow that seems to have decreased over time. Am I? Is that, is that your perception or what is your perception of our ability to actually uh, converse with each other? Well, I, I think that with the internet, with social media, the volume of information saturation that we have, the speed at which that information comes at us, it does um, encourage both 
superficial understanding of what's going on. Um, it rewards people who shout and who, you know, give their hot take on whatever is happening. And then we move on and there's no nuance to understanding or discussion of what's happening. And I think what, what you are saying is that curiosity is a, an essential component of democratic dialogue, basically, right? Of finding consensus. You can't have consensus without curiosity. One thing I'll say, and, you know, maybe this will help us end on a more uplifting note, is I think that the George Floyd murder really opened up a sense of curiosity among more Americans who previously thought they knew their position on the subject. And I think you just see that with the diversity of people in who are involved in these protests now and who have um, really, I think, shifted their position. I think if there's been a paradigm shift with following the George Floyd murder, where people just say, I see this differently now. And there is, I, se I sense an opening and more of people being led less by their egos and more by their humanity in how they are responding to this. And I, I don't know if you've, I mean, for me, this seems like the kind of shift that we saw during the Me Too movement in 2017, that all of a sudden there's just this huge societal shift in how we are seeing the issue. Remember, I don't know if you've ever seen that picture where, you know, it's a picture and if you look at it one way, it looks like a beautiful woman. And then if you just shift your way of looking at the same picture, it, it becomes, you know, this grotesque witch or something like that. And you can kind of suddenly yeah. toggle between the two. And I think that's where we are. And in many ways, it's um, this moment is inviting people to shift their way, to be curious about another way of looking at the world. And I think that we see that. And it's also why things feel uncertain right now, because we have this collective shift in kind of our, uh, uh, so you're from California, so I can be new agey in kind of our collective consciousness. Um, <laughs> yes. How, you know, how we're, how we're experiencing this moment. Well, and I agree with you. It's been my experience of this experience, if I could put it that way. And an interesting thing to juxtapose uh, Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement on a personal level, it was hard, I think, for me as a guy to find a place to stand in the Me Too movement. And, and we talked about it on the podcast and, you know, we tried to steer heavy, hard into it. But at the same time, and look, it might've just been my own mind. So I don't mean this in an overly critical way per, per se, but it, it felt somewhat exclusionary of men, right? At least to me. Um, and, and the aha is, as it relates to the Me Too movement, it's awesome when gals take a stand and say, this, this can't continue and we need things to be different and so forth. What would have been additionally more awesome would have been if a, if an olive branch was extended to the vast majority of men who at least are trying to do the right thing. Um, and, and while some of that happened, it didn't happen at scale. At least that was my perception. And maybe that's my fault. The thing that feels very different is um, today I can walk through my town wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Today we can have a paddle out, which is what surfers do as a ceremony at sea for, for a lost loved one. We can have a paddle out in Santa Cruz for George Floyd 
on the same day we have a vigil for murdered Sergeant Damon Gertzwiller, and we can cry at the vigil for Damon, and we can cry at the vigil for George, and at the vigil for George in the water, a shit ton of white surfers can can come together and chant Black Lives Matter. And, and that feels very different to me than before this movement that's been sparked by George Floyd's murder. And, and as a white dude, I, I feel great that it, 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 it seems okay for me to wear that Black Lives Matter t-shirt and to go out and paddle out and to do those things. I, I feel, let me say it this way. I feel like we're all included in this conversation in a way that certainly I didn't feel we were around racism. And that part is very um, positive to me, but I'm curious as to your reaction. Yeah, and I, I think that what you're feeling goes to this idea of being led by humanity rather than by ego, right? Ego is when we are attached, attached to certain labels about our, that, about our identity. Um, I'm a woman, I am Indian, or I'm white, and I am a man. And it, it sets, ego sets you up in opposition to somebody else. Um, and so when we have these paradigm shifts, we're, I think, able to let go of these identity, you know, these kind of tribal, ego-based sense of affiliation and more just connected because we're fellow humans. I think that's why you feel more included because you're just connecting at a human level. You're recognizing the suffering of someone else in a very fundamental heart-centered way, you know? Um, and I think, I think that's, it, it's similar to, to the meat, maybe, you know, this I, idea that as a man, you can't connect. I mean, I think that's still setting up this, duality um where it's it's similar right so it's about you know recognizing the suffering of another i mean it's kind of as simple as that and i think more people are feeling that now they're not you know it's not about police and not police i think this is why you're you're also recognizing the suffering of this um sergeant you know they're, they're both humans <laughs> you know whoever we're grieving we're still people who who live whatever they did and however we labeled them um while they were here uh, so getting to that helps us tra transcend these these you know tribal identities, uh, Democrat, Republican, man, woman, black, white, all of these things that I think end up becoming divisive, especially when we are in these soundbite yelling each other forums. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised that you feel that way. And I, I, like I said, I think that is a hopeful sign because I think that more people are feeling that. And that's good. It's good for us to feel connected at a fundamental level as humans. And am I overly simplistic? Because I, I look at this and go, at some level, this is about good versus evil. This is about standing on the right side of history. This is about believing in the fundamental foundational principles of the United States around equality for all. Right. I mean, it, and freedom for all and justice for all. Like these are not hard concepts. And the thing that the sort of aha here is if one of us is not free, if the system is unjust towards one of us, uh, if it's not a true meritocracy based on values and results and contributions as opposed to other things, then when that's true for one of us, it's true for all of us. And so if it's unjust mm -hmm. for you, 
it's unjust for me. And, and that's the sort of awakening that I'm trying to attach to, uh, and trying to hold on to as hope for the future. That, that the truth is when one of us is unjustly murdered, all of us are unjustly affected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when we can connect around values is where I think we will start to repair the fragmentation that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Because again, that means that we all are a part of a common enterprise. We are all here aspirationally building these values that this country was founded on. Um, and we, we have a, a lot of work to do, but this is what our, all of our great leaders have, you know, whether it was the suffrage movement, whether it was Dr. Martin Luther King, I mean, all of these are aspirational leaders who keep us moving forward towards common values. And we're just in a more challenging place because there are many forces that want to divide us um, and, and not and convince us that we're not actually in that enterprise together. Yes. And those forces that want to divide us, as far as I'm concerned, can go fuck themselves. <laughs> Asha, I know I don't have you for a ton of time. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap? No, I'm I'm just so happy that we were able to end on sort of an optimistic note because, you know, when I do these podcasts, somehow I always end up with, you know, democracy is dead. You know, it's like every, in, in the sweatpants fetal position with the with the whiskey and weed, you know, note, which is not how I want to end. I think, you know, the only way out of crisis is through it and we are going through it. And I think that, as you said, if we take our responsibility for ourselves um, and, and the steps we can take at a micro and macro level, um, I think we can come out more resilient than, than before. Well, and candidly, not to be, uh, I don't know, not to embarrass you too much, I guess, but your existence, your achievements and the place that you stand is inspiration in of itself. I mean, uh, you're an extraordinary person and you're a person that probably uh, either couldn't or was a lot less likely to exist a generation or two ago than today. And so just the fact that you are who you are doing what you do, um, I think is an inspiration to many. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. It really does. Thank you. And I, I hope you'll come back and we can do a 22 part series together. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, there she is, the legendary Asharang Papa. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. In challenging times, it's critical to have the real, up-to-date information and facts on your business. Visibility and control matter more today than ever before. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud ERP system. NetSuite is the one unified business management suite encompassing ERP and financials, CRM and e-commerce and more. With NetSuite, you get the full picture of your business. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to receive your free guide and a free product tour of NetSuite. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And organizations around the world rely on Splunk to modernize and strengthen their cyber defenses. Splunk is actually one of the fastest growing and largest 
uh, security software companies in the world and is used by many of the world's most sophisticated organizations to monitor, detect, respond, and resolve digital security threats. Learn more today at Splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And uh, also, we would like to thank Asha Rangpapa herself. You can find her on the internet at A-S-H-A-R-A-N-G-A-P-P-A.com. That's AshaRangpapa.com. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And I'd like you to know that One Life has been conducting programs for young people of color for almost a decade now. And what they do to foster uh, independence, to foster entrepreneurship and self-reliance and self-capability for young people and particularly young people of color is uh, damn inspiring. Please check out OneLifeFullyLive.org today. Um, we use Squadcast.fm here. Check out Squadcast.fm if you want a professional podcast platform. Uh, my friends at Spiro are the leaders in sales for salespeople, who, sales apps for salespeople who like to make money. And who doesn't like that? Check out Spiro, S-P-I-R-O dot A-I. Uh, also want to tell you that uh, Lockhead on Marketing, the number one marketing, uh, number one top marketing podcast charting on Apple. Uh, we just completed the first marketing pod storm. If you're in marketing or you want to help grow revenue, uh, check out Lockhead on Marketing and start at number 39, which is the start of the pod storm. My friends at Atranet have been building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And if you can make a difference today, please remember your local hospitals, churches, charities, local businesses, and my friends at doctorswithoutborders.org. This podcast is only for people who value real, different conversations and is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. And uh, clearly the odd, the Oddcast creators, I guess we'll go with that, huh, Jace? Uh, may, have been creating, <laughs> may have been creating libations and consuming them at the same time. Uh, we're produced by Jason DeFilippo, Jamie J, and Sarah Knox do technical awesomeness. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Black lives do matter. Thank you to all our healthcare heroes, our retail and supply chain heroes, and to all those small e entrepreneurs that we love so dearly. Speaking of love, love you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Senator Richard Burr. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please, please stay healthy. Thanks for the gift of your time. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.